0: All right, Mark. Chapter 8. It'll be in verse 34 through 9:13. Calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. "...and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified." And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked Him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are poor and needy. Yet you've taken thought of us. More, you have spoken to us in your word through your Son, who stepped out of heaven and took on flesh so that he might communicate your love to us by dying and resurrecting for us and for your glory. God, your incarnation is incomprehensibly mysterious and beautiful. It's akin to, but greater than, a man becoming a worm. Your love snaps the breath from our lungs. It stops us. Lord Jesus, how merciful and great you must be that you would leave all that is rightfully yours in heaven. That you would leave the perfect community of the Holy Trinity in order to bring men and women into community with yourself. You are brilliant. Your goodness dazzles and awakens Your generosity drops our jaws. You give beyond measure. Lord, your presence is a storm and a whisper. Let us feel the storm and hear your whisper now. Let us experience you through your word. We ask these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our text this morning is often referred to as the transfiguration or the transformation. The word used in Greek is metamorpho. Now that might sound a little familiar to you because it's where the English word metamorphosis comes from. Our word in English is usually used uh, to talk about a complete change or transformation. Maybe you've heard it used in a science class to talk about how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly goes through a metamorphosis. Or maybe you're like me and you grew up hearing a shortened version of the word morph as you watched the mighty Morphin Power Rangers. They were teenage kids that had these things. They would say it's Morphin Time and then they would be superheroes. Still not sure how it worked. It's Morphin Time. They changed. The section, the the transfiguration, transformation, or if you want to keep it simple, the change It's all about how Jesus' Jesus appearance changes radically, revealing his true identity. It's really about God's presence. The main idea of the text is that, that Jesus is God in the flesh. You see, to this point, the fullness of his identity has remained a secret. And yes, once more in verse 9, he will command the disciples to secrecy. But this is the last of the nine commands to silence, where he says, hey, I know I did something awesome, but don't tell anybody about it. This is the last time. In this time, he gives a little caveat. He says, I know I did something awesome, and that was really amazing. Don't tell anybody about it until I've raised from the dead. It's really awesome because Peter later in his book writes about this experience and says that what he's writing to us is actually better than the experience he had. That's how highly Peter thinks of the scriptures. But Jesus says, don't tell anybody what you've just learned until I rise from the dead because this messianic secret in Mark functions to pave the way to the cross. You see, if the masses become aware that Jesus is the Son of Man, they're going to misunderstand him. The Jewish people are expecting a conquering king, and Jesus will not conquer with the sword, but through his death. He keeps the fullness of his identity hidden because it's only from the vantage point of the cross and the resurrection that his life and ministry can be rightly understood. Until the cross and the resurrection happen, all other knowledge of Jesus—Jesus, Jesus, not Jesus—all other knowledge of Jesus is inadequate. Maybe you want to think of it a little bit like Clark Kent, yes, Superman's secret identity. I may have watched Man of Steel this week. Just saying. Now Clark is a reporter who seeks to publish the truth, and he's always leveraging his position to pursue justice. Yet, you can't fully understand Clark Kent without knowing that he is, in fact, Superman. Our knowledge of Clark Kent is inadequate until we gain knowledge of his true identity. Likewise, we cannot fully understand Jesus without knowing that he is, in fact, God. Our knowledge of Jesus is inadequate until we gain knowledge of his true identity. During his earthly ministry, Jesus is God incognito, if you will. It's kind of God in secret. Not everybody knows that he is God. But here on the mountain in Mark 9, he gives Peter, James, and John a glimpse of his glory. He gives them a demonstration of his power, a picture of his kingdom. The transfiguration is really Jesus taking off his glasses and tearing open his shirt to reveal the S on his chest. It's Jesus showing the disciples that God's presence is with them because he is God. Likewise, we learn from the vantage point of the cross and the resurrection that God's presence is with us, that God is with us, that he dwells in us by way of the Holy Spirit. And that's the one big thing this morning, or the one big idea I want you to think about this week as you meditate on this text, that God is with us. Three parts this morning. Behold the king, believe the king, and bow to the king. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste to death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some people say the disciples died, the kingdom of God is not here yet in fullness, and so this is a scripture that's unfulfilled. That's not true. You have to have a little bit better view of it, is that yes, the kingdom has come in part with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but also when he tells them that the kingdom is going to come in power, immediately we come to the transfiguration. And so what we're going to see here is a picture of the power of the kingdom. And those that are going to see it, that were standing there and heard that pronouncement, are Peter, James, James. And John, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now we might ask, why just Peter, James, and John? Why are they so special? You might answer because they're Jesus' inner circle. Those are the ones that are closest to him, and this was a time of intimacy, perhaps. But I heard a theory that I like a little bit better. You see, in Luke's account, in chapter 9, verse 28, uh, he tells us that they went up on the mountain to pray. And I think that it was a routine pattern and part of Jesus' life to go places and to pray. And I think it's highly likely that he often asked the disciples to come with him. I think maybe he asked, Hey, I'm going to pray on the mountain. Who wants to come? And that Peter, James, and John were the only ones that took him up on the offer. I don't think this theory is too outlandish. Uh, Actually, I think that it plays itself out today routinely, right? There's a prayer meeting going on. Usually only about one out of four Christians show up. That's the the ratio here. Maybe less. I think we neglect prayer because we forget that through prayer we experience God. We forget that this communion with God, prayer, is a crown of our faith. Prayer is a striving to take hold of God. And many of us are apathetic in prayer because we're apathetic towards Jesus. We don't desire Him. So, just a quick, easy application as we get started here this morning is to ask How is your prayer life? How have you been upholding that challenge we had a few weeks back to pray for something every day for six months? How's that going? Are you praying for one another? There's a a member list in the back there you can grab, and that's a really excellent way to pray. Pick a column each day of the week and pray for those people through it. Are you praying through the member list? In verse 7, the Father will tell the disciples to listen to Jesus. Listening is part of prayer, and it requires time. Do, Do you have time set aside to listen to Jesus? And can you show it to me on your calendar? He speaks through his word and prayer. Are you hearing him? Have you carved out time to devote simply to the Lord, to your communion with him? Well, it's during this prayer time on the mountain that we learn from other accounts again that Peter, James, and John, they all fall asleep. But they become fully awake in the wake of Christ's radiance. That's when we come to uh, the second part of verse 2, if you'll look there with me. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus is changed. His clothing is so white, Mark is struggling to describe it, and so he says, he was whiter than my mama could ever bleach any of my clothes. He's white, he's pure, radiant. Luke says they were dazzling white. Jesus is revealing his true identity. In these moments, Jesus' godness is being allowed to shine forth in all its glory. Here, the disciples are able to see a portrait of the power of the kingdom of God. There's more, though. Look at verse 4. "...and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus." Now, Elijah and Moses here represent the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and they were both great deliverers. Together, they're showing us the prophetic tradition that points to the Messiah, that points to Jesus, and their their disappearing act in verse 8 gives us a, a, a picture of their function, if you will, which is ultimately to point us to Jesus. But there are also strong links here to an event, very much like this one, that occurred centuries prior See, according to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, God came down on a mountain, Mount Sinai, in a cloud, and then Moses went up on this mountain to meet with God. And and in Exodus 33, if you're really quick, you can turn there and and check it out, uh, Moses has just asked God to forgive Israel for foolishly worshiping a golden cow that they made. And in verse 1 of chapter 33, God tells Moses to leave the mountain and to go to the promised land. God assures Moses that he will send an angel before him to overcome Israel's enemies. But because of Israel's sin, because they've worshipped the golden calf, he says in verse 3 to Moses, I will not go up among you. Now as awesome as angels are, as cool as they are, it's not good enough for Moses. And so he pleads in verse 12. He says, who will you send with, with me, Lord? And he boldly demands that God accompany Israel himself. Moses doesn't want a mere angel. He wants God. He wants the promise of God's presence to go with them. And eventually God replies, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses thinks he's on a roll here and so he makes another request in verse 18. Listen to what he says. Please show me your glory. And God responded, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face. For man shall not see my face and live. Moses was not able to see God's glory directly. But even getting near to the glory, even just seeing the the back parts of God, if you will, is enough to make Moses' face shine with the reflected glory of God. If you remember, when he comes down the mountain, he has to wear a veil to keep from kind of weirding everybody out because his face is glowing with the glory of God. So all that happened on a mountain. There was a cloud. There was glory. And here we are, centuries later, we're on top of another mountain and there's glory. There's dazzling brightness that makes Jesus' clothes whiter than white. There's a voice and a cloud. And hey, even Moses is here, right? Is this is this Mount Sinai all over again? Well, no. Because there's a twist here. You see, Moses had reflected the glory of God as moon reflects the light of the sun. He'd seen a portion of it, just a, a glimpse. Whereas Moses had reflected the glory of God, Jesus is producing the glory of God. It emanates from him. You see, Jesus does not point to the glory of God as Elijah and Moses and every other prophet before them. Jesus is the glory of God. Hebrews says it like this. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Now don't miss this either. Just like Moses asked God earlier on, who who will you send with me? How can I know that I'll have victory? Just as he's unwilling to go to the promised land apart from God's presence, so too are the disciples unwilling to believe in a suffering Messiah at this point. We saw that in Peter's satanic rebuke of Jesus in chapter 8 verse 33 it shows us that the disciples are following Jesus but they have not yet denied their own messianic expectations and embraced the cross you see there are two unspoken questions in their hearts at this point who is this Jesus really what does it mean for him to be the Messiah and who will go with us if we follow him Jesus knows their hearts and answers both questions by taking off his glasses and tearing open his shirt. He shows them his glory. The transfiguration is Jesus showing the disciples that God's presence is with them because he is with them. He is God. He's telling the disciples, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So uh, by way of application, How can you know who Jesus is? That's the question. How can you know who Jesus is? Behold His glory. You can know who Jesus is by beholding His glory and believing the testimony of the cross and the resurrection. Who will go with you as you follow Jesus? How will you live this Christian life? The presence of God. The Holy Spirit, who dwells within every Christian, will empower you to follow the way of the cross. Look with me at verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So Peter, James, and John have just witnessed an extraordinary event that in many ways mirrors the extraordinary event at Sinai when God showed Moses his glory. You with me so far? Still tracking? This is a, it's important to note the connection again because it helps us understand why Peter says what he says. See, God showing his glory to Moses was more than just a personal blessing. It was more than just for Moses because Moses functioned as a covenant representative of all the people. So when God shows Moses his glory on Sinai, he's signifying his presence is with Moses and with all of Israel. God demonstrates his presence among Moses and among the people on Sinai by privately showing Moses his glory. And he's also going to signify his presence publicly, by inhabiting the tabernacle that will be constructed in chapters 35 through 40 of Exodus. So God shows Moses his glory privately, and then he's going to show his glory publicly by way of the tent or the tabernacle in the latter part of Exodus. The book, in fact, closes with these words. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle should note that tabernacle was a tent that the Israelites constructed during the Exodus, and so this served as a place where God dwelled. It represented his relationship with the people. That's why Peter says tents here. Tabernacles, tents, booths. It's kind of the same thing. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The Lord shows his glory to Israel publicly in the tabernacle to signify his presence with them. This public display of his presence would give Israel great confidence as they followed God. They knew because they were following his glory. They were following his presence. They were following God. God was with them. So how does this relate to what Peter says? I think Luke's account helps us understand a little bit more. Luke adds, he says, And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and listen to this, spoke of his departure, which was about to, he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The word for departure here in Greek is one that you know, so you can recognize it. It's exodon, which comes from, maybe you guessed it, exodus, which means departure or death. It means departure or death. And so Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his death, his exodus. And I think Peter, having his own messianic expectation and being very familiar with the exodus story and what happened with Moses on Sinai and, and God's glory being displayed privately and then publicly, I think he hears what he wants to. I think he hears exodus and doesn't think death, but departure. I think Peter says, oh, I'm going to follow the pattern of exodus. He understands that he, James, and John, like Moses, have seen the glory of God's presence privately. And now he wants to construct tabernacles to display God's presence publicly, just like the tabernacle in Exodus. He wants to put up these temples to show everybody in all of Israel that God's glory is here, and we're following him. Peter sees Elijah, who precedes the Messianic king. He sees Moses. He sees Jesus. And he thinks that his way is going to work out after all. Glory will come. It has come. The kingdom has come without the cross. And so he says, let's put up tents. Let's tell the whole world the kingdom has come. I mean, it really makes perfect sense if you think about it. It's after all right around the the time that they would have been celebrating the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. It's a feast that commemorates God leading the Exodus, delivering the people from Egypt. And so he wants to set up camp. He wants to celebrate and start this new Exodus right now. He's in a way saying forget suffering and dying. Let's just go straight to the kingdom, straight into glory. And he's right about Jesus bringing a new exodus. He's right about Jesus leading the people out of bondage. But he thinks it's a political bondage. But it's a spiritual one. Jesus will lead the people out of bondage to sin. He doesn't understand. Peter doesn't understand that Jesus must bring about the new exodus through his death. Which kind of serves as a new Passover going to bring the new exodus through his death and resurrection. Peter still cannot wrap his mind around a suffering Messiah, still not ready to submit to the way of the cross. How about you? Have you accepted that following Jesus means denying your selfish ambition, denying your own lordship of your life, and bowing to Jesus' lordship, are you, still, are you still struggling with the authority of Jesus in your life? I mean, what, what what commands are you hesitant to obey? What commands of Scripture are really hard for you to obey? Is it confessing your sins to one another? Is it not gossiping? Is it being continually in prayer? Is it not coveting other people's stuff? Is it belonging to and submitting to the church? Do you resist casting your cares on him? Do you sit in continual worry? Do you allow earthly passions to exist within and drive you? What's hard for you to obey? Are you ready to submit to the way of the cross? How are you resisting the rule of Jesus in your life? What expectations do you have of Jesus that are false? That he's just not going to meet? How are you like Peter here? How might you learn to better submit to Jesus? As Peter's talking about throwing up tents, God the Father interrupts him. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. The father has had enough. He's heard enough. He says, really, just listen to this guy. And he speaks from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then there's none but Jesus. The declaration from heaven is setting Jesus apart from Moses, sets him apart from Elijah, and designates him uniquely as God's son. The ministries of Moses, Elijah, and the whole Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Moses led the people of God on an exodus out of Egypt after the Lord's judgment took the life of every firstborn, not under the roof of a house whose door was marked with the blood of a lamb. Jesus leads the people of God on an exodus out of death after the Lord takes his life, so that all who follow him can live safe under the roof of his house, whose door is marked with his blood, the blood of the Lamb. Elijah delivered the people of God from false gods with a fiery demonstration of God's limitless power on a mountain. Jesus delivers the people of God from false gods with a glorious demonstration of God's limitless power by bursting forth from a grave in the side of a mountain. Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. And by His suffering, He will give men and women what Moses and Elijah never could. Peace with God. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Let me say it differently. Behold the king. Listen to him. You know, to listen is to obey. So I ask again, are you listening well? Or are you in rebellion? After the father's voice speaks, Jesus puts his glasses back on and buttons his shirt back up once more, concealing his godness. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. As I said earlier, we've dealt with this a little bit. Jesus keeps the fullness of his identity hidden because it's only from the vantage point of the cross and the resurrection that his life and ministry can be rightly understood. Verse 10. So they kept the matter to, him, to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They still don't get it. They still don't understand And so they ask him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Let me translate this for you. How can you be the Messiah, Jesus, if Elijah hasn't come yet? Verse 12, and Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And so they say, how can you be the Messiah if Elijah hasn't come yet? And Jesus responds, you're right. Elijah does come before the Messiah. And he has come. And then he says, how can I be the Messiah if I don't suffer? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Matthew's account adds, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The disciples are trying to put together what they know, together with what they've just learned. Jesus is explaining to them that things are not what they expected at all. That they've overlooked the many scriptures concerning his death. He says, look, you missed it. Elijah did come in the person of John the Baptist. And just as John the Baptist was rejected and killed, so too will the Son of Man be rejected and killed. Just as John fulfilled God's will for him, so too will the Son of Man. See, the disciples at this point have beheld the king and they're still learning to listen to and believe the king. Do you believe him? Have you listened to the message? Do you believe the Messiah has come? And so what, what's the point of all this? What's the point of the transfiguration? I think there are many reasons it, it reveals Jesus as God incarnate. Uh, it strengthens the disciples. It fulfills the promise that Jesus just made in Mark 9.1. But I think primarily it happens for God to say to the disciples and consequently to us, my presence is with you. I will give you rest. See, here on the mountain, Jesus gives Peter, James, and John a glimpse of his glory, a demonstration of his power, and a picture of his kingdom. Why? For the same reason Moses needed to see God's glory on Mount Sinai. Just like Moses needed to know God would go with him to take the promised land, so too the disciples needed to know that God would go before them and be present with them as they followed King Jesus to Golgotha. The disciples needed to know God's presence would be with them as they denied themselves, took up their crosses, and gave up their lives to follow the way of the King. (laughs) Jesus is not a clueless or a distant King does not ask us to do what he has not done. His words in chapter 8, 34 through 9, verse 1, require less of us than they did of him. Listen to his words. Listen to what he says once more. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will, save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. Jesus is asking less of you than he did of himself. Don't you see it? Jesus asks us to deny ourselves and follow him to death. Only after he has denied himself, he empties himself. He gives up heaven. He lays down his crown. He takes off his robes of brilliant colors and splendor. He makes himself nothing. He gives up his glory. He bows his knee to the Father's will. He picks up the cross and loses His life for your sake in the Gospels. He gives up His soul in order to win the world. He experiences shame so that we can experience the glory of His kingdom. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. He shows the disciples the power of the kingdom so they can know that God's presence is with them as they follow him. But don't miss this. That is a comfort he did not have. Jesus was abandoned on the cross. He that knew no sin became sin. He took all the justice and wrath that you and I deserve, he denied his riches and took your wrath so that he could give you the treasure of himself. The, the transfiguration is, is one of Jesus' three baptisms in the gospel. He's baptized three times in the gospel. Once he's baptized in water, he identifies with men. And we hear the Father say, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He's baptized once with glory. Glory here on the mountain of transfiguration to identify himself as God. And we hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And he's baptized once with blood on the cross to identify himself as our substitute, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we listen to him cry out, My Father! My Father! Why have you forsaken me? And we hear nothing but deafening silence in response from the Father. You see, Jesus died outside of the presence of God so that you could be indwelt with the presence of God. It's amazing. Jesus was rejected so you could be accepted. Because Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and rose to life heralding the beginning of new creation, those that have faith in him can be made new. Friends, I implore you to behold the king, to believe the king, to bow to the king and be made new. I and mean, praise God because of this good news. I mean, we don't need to we don't need to put up tents. We don't need to look to tabernacles or build temples to know that God's presence is with us because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Ezekiel 36.25-27 says, "I, well, this is Him making the promise of the Spirit coming, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. He's put His Spirit within you. 1 Corinthians 3.16-17 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Do you know it? Romans 8, 11. if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He dwells in you, Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons of God, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. His spirit cries out within you. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news that gives you life, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promise of His Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. God has put His Holy Spirit within you You've experienced the glory of God because you have beheld the King. And now as the church, you display the glory of God to the world. You've experienced His glory privately and now you display it publicly because of what Jesus has done. The transfiguration is Jesus taking off His glasses, tearing open His shirt and revealing the yes on His chest. It's Jesus showing us that he is the God-man. It's him showing the disciples God's presence is with them, that God is with them because he is with them. Likewise, we learn from the vantage point of the cross and the resurrection that God's presence is with us because the Holy Spirit is in us, because we know him. We can listen to Jesus because God is with us. God's presence, the Holy Spirit enables us to behold the king, to believe the king, and to bow to the king. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your kindness to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the preaching of your word this morning. We thank you for those of us that have followed you. You've taken from us a heart of stone and given to us a heart of flesh. Thank you that you indwell us with your Holy Spirit. But Lord, we confess we are guilty often of hardening our hearts. And of rebuking your Holy Spirit in favor of listening to our own ideas. Father, we're guilty of trying to set up our own tabernacles. We're guilty of trying to pursue our own glory. Rather than submitting to the way of the cross. Rather than denying ourselves and following you, and displaying your glory. Father, make us hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Fix our eyes on you, on the cross and the resurrection, that we might understand you rightly, that we might behold your glory, and that beholding that glory coupled with the power of your Holy Spirit within us would drive us into a life of holiness, that the posture of our hearts would be bowed to your will. Father, help us to see your presence, to take up our crosses and follow you. To you be the glory. Amen.